does it mean to read Romans with Eastern eyes? Combining research from Asian scholars with his many years of experience living and working in East Asia, Jackson directs our attention to Paul's letter to the Romans. He argues that some traditional East Asian cultural values are closer to those of the first century biblical world than common Western cultural values. In addition, he adds his voice to the scholarship engaging the values of honor and shame in particular and their influence on biblical interpretation. As readers, we bring our own cultural fluencies and values to the text. Our biases and backgrounds influence what we observe and what we overlook. This book helps us consider ways we sometimes miss valuable insights because of widespread cultural blind spots. In reading Romans with Eastern eyes, Jackson demonstrates how paying attention to East Asian culture provides a helpful lens for interpreting Paul's most complex letter. When read this way, we see how honor and shame shape so much of Paul's message and mission. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jackson Wu about his new book, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, Honor and Shame in Paul's Message and Mission. Jackson Wu earned his PhD from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and has lived and worked in East Asia for almost two decades and serves as the Asian Asian American Theology Steering Committee of the Evangelical Theological Society. He is the author of Saving God's Face and The Gospel for All Nations, A Practical Approach to Biblical Contextualization. Although not Chinese, he teaches theology and missiology for Chinese pastors at a seminary in Asia. Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical and cultural studies. Sure. Uh, well, uh, as you said, we've uh, my family and I have served uh, in Asia, East Asia, for a good long while. Uh, first as a church planter, and then I and a group uh, started a seminary for Chinese pastors. And so I'm a professor there. Uh, I would say my interest... And biblical and cultural studies really started early on. Um, John Piper was a big influence on my thinking and helped me to appreciate uh, the importance of exegesis. I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and Scott Haithman uh, really stressed exegesis. And, and he's actually one of the people the book's dedicated to. Uh, I've always really been interested in how people think, uh, whether it be logically, culturally, whatnot. And so uh, uh, I went off and got a, a master's in philosophy as well, just trying to understand how people you know, look at different problems. And so that just simply carried over into cultural studies as well. Mm. Yeah. And so what inspired writing this particular book? Well, when I was writing my dissertation, which became the book Saving God's Face, I saw all these, you know, uh, insights in Romans that I said, why have I not seen these before? Why do I see these in commentaries? And and for me, uh, I saw this tension, this divide. Uh, the, in biblical studies, uh, there was an emphasis on exegesis, but yet there was a suspicion for cultural readings. And I can understand that suspicion because people are afraid of eisegesis. Uh, but yet at the same time, I saw the value of cultural perspectives because the uh, various cultures have just bring different questions to the text. And help us to see things that maybe wouldn't see that actually are in the text. So uh, 
uh, that's kind of the two forces that came together. And of course, I wanted, I wanted to see all that Romans has to say. Um, and I, living in East Asia, I found a lot of Chinese pastors, they would just absorb traditional Western theology merely because it was traditional. And, uh, but yet, you know, many interpreters overlook, you know, the various potential insights that non-Western cultures can bring to the conversation. Uh, I picked Romans in particular because as I looked at the literature on honor and shame and, and such topics, I saw there was uh, work done in a lot of other books, but not in Romans, which is the so-called most legal book in the New Testament. So I, I figure, well, if we can make the case that honor and shame are important themes in Romans, well, then we've made the case for a whole number of other books. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So in the introduction, what you do is you link East Asian culture with the ancient Mediterranean world of the Bible. Um, so what similarities do you see between the two? Hmm. Yeah, this is a key uh, part of the book, but it's, it's an it's a point that can get confused. I'm not saying at all that they are synonymous, that they are exactly the same. Not at all. I mean, no two cultures are exactly the same. But there's affinity, certainly, between cultures, and that's the case here. Uh, in the book, I focus on three main threads that in both the ancient Mediterranean world and in traditional East Asian cultures, there's an emphasis on tradition, on relationships, uh, and on hierarchy. Um, if you want, I can unpack that a little bit. Uh, sure, for, yeah. But by, by tradition, I mean that what is standard, that is what is normal, it becomes regarded as the standard, you know, what is normative. Mm. Uh, and so there's a great emphasis on uniformity, order, balance, uh, harmony, uh, uh, what is natural, you know, the natural world. Uh, so, for example, bloodline, more than personal belief, will define fundamental relationships. Mm-hmm. Now, with relationships, uh, it you know you can think of uh, one's identity in two ways: one, how I'm different than other people, and how I'm similar to other people. And what are my relationships? Who am I in relation to other people? And in both contexts, there's far more emphasis on defining oneself with respect to others. Uh, that my identity is derived from my relationship to others, my membership in a group. Uh, and with that comes various values like you know loyalty, uh, whatnot. And hierarchy, uh, this is more self-explanatory, emphasis on rank, social status, authority, power, and all those together uh, help form or factors that shape a person's uh, reputation, their their social standing, or, you know, in Chinese, we might say their face. Mm. Uh, Basically, a person's perceived worth in a particular social context. Mm. Right. And and that kind of leads to how you begin, you know, this book in chapter one of how you discuss, you know, achieved and described honor. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak to how they influence our reading of Romans. Absolutely. First, we need to clarify what is meant by ascribed and achieved honor and shame. Uh, achieved honor, something that Western cultures are more familiar with in general, uh, though ascribed honor and shame and cheat honor and shame are in all cultures, just the emphasis in different cultures can vary. So in a lot of Western contexts, there's more emphasis on achieved honor or shame. That is 
what do you do? What accomplishments do you have or what failures do you have? Uh, and that's going to uh, achieve or win you, earn you honor or shame. Now, ascribed uh, honor or shame is that which comes from your relationships to other others, your position. So, for example, someone who has uh, the status of president, regardless of whatever they've done, achieved honor or shame, there's going to be a certain respect that's given to the president of a company, president of a country or whatnot. Um, so that's what's meant by ascribed and achieved honor and shame. Hmm. Now, uh, according to traditional or conventional interpretations, uh, people say that Paul regards law-keeping as an effort to earn God's favor or salvation, in effect, achieved honor. Uh, that's, that's more of the traditional perspective. Uh, what, what I would suggest is that uh, there's more stress get, actually in Romans on ascribed honor. It doesn't mean there's no achieved honor there at all. It's simply that there's a little bit more emphasis given than, than has been recognized that uh, uh, people are, uh, are ascribed honor based on their belonging in, say, a certain community, whether it be Israel or um, the church or, or whatnot. And so I mean, this plays out throughout the book. Um, I think we're going to get into it. Uh, I could go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe this would be good kind of to then turn to chapter two, where we talk about, you know, the collective identity, um, where, you know, you focus on chapter two of, of how Paul uses collective identity to, to shape um, his readers' theology and practice. But then also you mentioned that um, regarding Romans chapter four, you know, and, and how honor and shame shapes Christians identity. So yeah, maybe if you could just speak to what is the way that Paul uses collective identity and, and how that kind of plays out in the community of those who follow Jesus. Yeah. Ascribed honor, shame and collective identity are very intertwined because uh, one's honor uh, or ascribed honor and shame speaks of uh, one's worth uh, to use John Barclay's uh, term. Um, uh, and, and, and therefore, you have to think about, well, what are the community's criterion of worth? Well, and what we see in Romans you know, 2 through 4 especially is this discussion of the law and the role it plays. And uh, in Paul's discussion, uh, what he's trying to, un, to unhinge or unsettle is this idea that law-keeping and thus being Jewish um, signifies any kind of status before God. Um, hmm. and, and so Paul wants to uh, free people of the idea that you must become Jewish. You must belong to Israel in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. Um, and so the, he wants to overcome the sense of cultural superiority that uh, his Jewish opponents had that inevitably divided the world into insiders and outsiders. Uh, effectively, his Jewish opponents, by trying to limit justification and ultimately salvation to uh, those who were who were Jewish, those who had been circumcised, effectively they colonized the world um, uh, and prioritized one people, one nation, over against all other nations. So Paul is overcoming ancient ethnocentrism, but that, uh, but when, but when I say that, I know that there is a whole group of people who get very worried at that. They think, okay, you think that Romans has nothing to do with salvation. 
so forth. But no, I would take a middle ground between the traditional perspective on Paul and the so-called new perspective on Paul to say that Paul is definitely talking about collective identity and so forth, but he is dealing at the same time with salvation because Paul wants to overcome the the notion that one of the prerequisites, uh, one of the uh, assumed criteria of worth is that you belong to Israel. Um, Because if, if he, if he, if that were the case, then basically God would not be able to keep his promise to Abraham, which is where we get into Romans four, where he say, I'll bless all nations. Well, if everybody has to become a Jew in order to become justified, then God is only blessing one nation. Hmm. That's probably the most prompt. That's probably the most prominent place that you see collective identity uh, at work in, in Paul. There's, a more subtle dynamic that he into the book of, of basically Paul's purpose for writing the letter. And uh, in short, uh, I suggest that what Paul is doing is he's tr- using the Jew Gentile divide as a way of addressing prejudice or bias that the Roman Greeks have against the barbarians, the non-Greeks. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a pretty fitting analogy to overcome that prejudice because Paul knows that uh, the Greeks, the Roman Greeks are not going to be enthusiastic about going to, you know, backwoods barbarians, uh, you know, from their perspective. And he reminds them, Hey, remember how you guys are actually Gentiles, you're outsiders. Um, and so there's this whole uh, interplay that happens that I get into more detail in the book, but that's at a more subtle level that gets to the purpose of the letter. That's right. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, and how, especially in Romans 1 through 3, there's kind of this leveling of the playing field where um, where then you, you spend in chapter 3 kind of talking about um, sin and that which separates um, people from God. And so my question is, you know, what does sin have to do with honor and shame? This was a, a very interesting part of this book. I loved it. Mm, no, good. Uh, yeah. Sometimes people think that if you talk about the social dimensions that you're throwing out salvation, but uh, discussion, but also that you're throwing out sin as if sin is this trivial thing. Not at all. The way people typically talk about sin, especially in the context of Romans, they see sin as a crime. Like they, that particular metaphor to, to sin is to break the law. Well, that is one metaphor among others that could be used to describe sin. Um, in Chinese, that's how exactly how it is described. Described. So when you talk to a Chinese person and you talk about being a sinner, you're, you say, "Hey, you're a criminal," and people go, "What are you talking about? <laughs> I've never broken anything. I have no idea." And it becomes a pretty big hindrance. And the problem is that describing sin as crime is merely true, uh, but the Bible uses a whole range of metaphors to talk about what sin is. And so when uh, one of the the basic ideas that I'm putting forth uh, or that I say it's just Paul saying is that sin fundamentally is dishonoring God, bringing shame upon God's name. Now people don't know quite what to do with that sometimes because they see honor and shame as mere psychological concepts or shame is merely a result of sin. But shame is both the cause of God's anger and the consequence of disregarding him. You know, people are, not honoring him. Um, and you see this really heavily throughout Romans one to three. Um, 
it's interesting to note that in Romans 1, you never see any sort of allusion to uh, or reference, explicit reference, I should say, to the law. Um, it's constant honor-shame language. When Paul speaks of unrighteousness in Romans 1, he uses honor-shame language, saying that humanity did not honor God as honor him as God or give thanks to him. Um, uh, rather, they claim to be wise, but actually they're foolish. And my favorite passage is, uh, uh, oh, and in chapter one, it talks about how they become shameful. Now, uh, my favorite passage on this is in Romans 2, 23 and 24. Uh, Paul says, uh, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, what's intriguing there is the main verb there is dishonor. And in fact, the by breaking the law, it's a prepositional phrase that modifies dishonor. So mm. the breaking of the law explains how the Jews dishonor God. Um, the, the, but the big idea, the big E on the E chart, so to speak, is that they dishonored God. And breaking the law is just one among other ways you could do that. Uh, and to confirm this, you look at the very next verse, you know, you see a four there. Uh, it says four is written. The name of God is blaspheming by the Gentiles because of you. So mm -hmm. Paul's opponents, uh, the essential problem is obvious. Paul's opponents publicly shame God's name, bring shame upon his name in the eyes of the nations, in the eyes of others, and want to bring his name to disrepute. Right. Uh, and of course there's the, all the, the super famous Romans three twenty three, all sin and, and, and lack uh, the glory of God. And, uh, that, that's a, that's kind of a bigger rabbit trail, but you know, you would think that given such a famous verse in it concerning, you know, honor and shame right there and the, talking about the glory of God, you would think that we would discuss this far more, uh, right. far more than we have. I know. Yeah. And so that does kind of lead us to what you discuss in chapter five, which is honor and shame and, and how in Romans three, Paul is kind of teaching that you suggest that Paul is teaching that Jesus saves God's face. I'd mm -hmm. love if you could kind of explain that idea and, and develop that a little bit for us. Uh, absolutely. This is one of my uh, favorite aspects of Paul's letter that I think really, really does not get the attention it deserves. Um, Paul uh, Romans scholars widely recognize that uh, Romans you know, three and Romans nine are, are intricately linked. Um, and there needs to be far more recognition of that because what you actually get it is an apologetic, a defense of God's reputation in Romans three. Because uh, if you, if Paul is right in Romans two, Paul's Jewish opponents uh, basically see, want to question God's character and say, Hey, is God unfaithful? If, if that's true, then God's not righteous. Um, and when you look in, in context, it's clear that the righteous there is God's righteousness and faithfulness are intertwined and referring to whether or not God keeps his promises. Because after all, if God judges Jews and accepts Gentiles, well, then what, what in the world were all these promises that we've been depending on? And Paul does this gorgeous uh, uh, argument using Psalm 51. And uh, I... I wrote a more extended article on it. And so the book can only give a summary of the high points, but essentially uh, the key, very key themes that you see in Psalm 51 
are also found in Romans 3, where David is emphasizing that God does not delight in the works of the law, um, but he, he delights in a new heart and a right spirit. Um, David comes to an example confirming that the law doesn't fundamentally define who God's people are. Uh, it's a matter of the heart, a matter of the spirit. And so uh, David becomes the, the perfect example to, to rebut the Jewish objectors uh, and to say, no, um, you guys misunderstood what God's been doing all along. And consequently, and here's the take home, is that uh, Paul defends, upholds God's honor because he actually is keeping his promises as he's always said he would. He actually is righteous apart from the law, apart from national identity. Um, uh, and so the, it, it's, it's a big section uh, upholding God's honor, which is being threatened basically by uh, his Jewish opponents who are undermi- fundamentally undermining God's promise, who want to fundamentally undermine God's promise to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Right. Which then kind of leads into Romans 5 and 6. And um, I just thought it would be a good question to consider is how does Christ's faithfulness glorify God and then consequently restore honor to his family? Mm. The, uh, the kind of overarching theme through here is this idea. Uh, actually, uh, okay, you're... When I'm, you're in chapter five, is that right? I want to make sure mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm on. Ah, okay. Um, you know, there's been a long debate about whether it speaks of Christ's faithfulness or, or faith in Christ. Um, what, however you, you put it, that you still see the same dynamic involved is that Christ, uh, as the firstborn son, does what the rest of the human family fails to do. Uh, so the firstborn in honor shame cultures embodies the family honor. And so uh, to be in union with Christ means to share his honor and, and shame, you know, whether it's public shame uh, or his honor before God. Uh, and so when Christ is justified via the resurrection, he's honored by God because of his faithfulness. Um, you know, uh, I think in traditional reform terms, you might say his, you know, active obedience or whatnot, uh, and so uh, we, we being belonging to him are declared members of his family because we're in Christ. And, uh, and so what's true of Christ becomes true of those who are in Christ. Right. And so he, you know, to use more Eastern terms, he becomes the filial son uh, uh, and Christ followers give honor to the father just as the son did. Right. Yeah. Uh, and a one, one thing I would add is that, uh, whereas Christ's faithfulness, he achieves honor through his life and death and resurrection, but we, being in union with Christ, can only hope for ascribed honor from the Son. So th- there is kind of a tie back to that whole achieved and ascribed honor discussion. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and then in chapter eight, you discuss how the path to honor can come through shame. Um, particularly drawing from Romans 5 through 8. How does Jesus's honor through shame become Christian's honor through shame? Mm. Yeah, this is a paradigm, uh, the idea that uh, Christ and we are honored through shame, that we actually see seeds in the Old Testament. Uh, 
the cross uh, and the resurrection are basically the uh, the centerpiece of this discussion. That is, Christ is honored in the resurrection uh, through his death, which is the ultimate shame uh, that occurs on the cross, which at just a worldly level is the most shameful death one can imagine. And so what does God do? He God vindicates him. And and that's what you, what you see in Roman in the discussion, you know, five, really five to eight the whole way through, because I see that as one unit of thought. And so we, in the same way, we were shameful slaves to sin, you know, kind of a Pharaoh figure uh, there, uh, sin. But then when we are free, we are honored in the, in, and glorified as we are raised with Christ and become uh, part of his people, part of his kingdom people. And what this does ultimately is it changes our our boasting, what we boast in. And uh, boasting kind of gets a, a bad rap mm-hmm. because we think it only negative. But the term is used positively and negative in the letter. And, and boasting becomes one of those kind of key words that signifies shifts in Paul's logic and his perspective. Uh, because what you boast in both reflects and shapes your identity. Right. Uh, and so it's an expression of your honor, shame perspective. And so people start boasting in the cross, uh, which is seen as a shameful thing, but actually that's your grounds of honor. That's because I mean, not grounds of honor, that's not the right word, but that's, that is an expression of uh, what your basis of honor is. That is Christ and the cross. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I root in the book, I root this in Isaiah's suffering servant uh, and essentially uh, the suffering servant is honored through the shame he endures, as does Israel uh, in the broader story. Mm, right. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really great point. Um, and then, you know, as you keep moving through the book, you, you get to Romans 7. And this is just such a fascinating chapter. Um, and as a very fresh perspective on a very debated topic. And so... I, I would love to hear your thoughts on on what clues kind of suggest that Paul has a collectivist perspective, which is what I believe you put forward in chapter nine. Um, but yeah, what clues suggest that in Romans seven? Yeah, uh, and I'll tell you uh, a little side note is that my first draft to IVP of this book did not include anything about Romans seven. <laughs> uh, and uh, Dan Reed, my first editor, said, uh, I cannot imagine a book about Romans and Shame that does not talk about Romans 7. <laughs> and uh, so, and I basically was like, oh, there's so many technical issues here. And, and uh, this is just going to confuse readers. And it doesn't explicitly use honor shame language. So can we just kind of, <laughs> can we get, get a pass? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm so glad he called me the carpet on that. <laughs> um, um, so, Yeah. Basically, I, I, I will give a very oversimplified explanation uh, or summary, and that is uh, there's so much collectivistic language in the surrounding context of Romans 7 that it's just to me unfathomable that Paul would all of a sudden go into hyper-individualistic terms in Romans 7. And so that drove me to go, well, let me just look I mean, a little closer. You know, I, I can't force it in there, but let's see obviously nobody can seem to agree how Romans 7 is about and I started noticing that there is uh, we language uh, sprinkled uh, throughout especially early on mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, uh, the I suggest ultimately that the I refers collectively to Israel during the Exodus rather than an individual. And so uh, there's like a whole range of clues uh, that suggest that Paul is talking about Israel in terms of um, basically only Israel as a nation fits the description of Romans 7. Uh, I go through a list of things saying it can't mean this kind of person. It can't mean that kind of person. It can't mean this kind of person. Uh, the whole framework uh, in which Romans 7 fits in uh, uh, seems to refer to Israel collectively. Um, and th- that requires, uh, I think I give six different reasons. And, and, and I think his purpose is, as others uh, have suggested, is uh, it's, a, it's a defense. Uh, uh, it's a, a defense against any kind of uh, impression that he is kind of throwing Israel under the bus and uh, being, you know, anti-Israel on the one hand, but also it, it, it works very conveniently as Paul is trying to vindicate uh, the law and the me, the I, you know, the Israel uh, the, you know, that he's referring to. Uh, so that serves its purpose because we want to keep in mind in context that Paul is writing to communities, not individuals, you know, people who saw themselves as embedded in communities. And so very easily uh, people would say, uh, yeah, see you Jews, you know, you're rejected, you're cast away, look at how you are. But yet Paul wants to vindicate the I, that is the uh, Israel who, and yet end the law over against sin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's a very, very superficial summary, but uh, I don't think you want to get in the weeds right here. Yeah, no, I think that's, that serves its purpose. And, you know, I'd encourage uh, listeners to go and, and read that chapter and, um, yeah, and consider those, those issues. Um, so obviously, you know, any big work on Romans is going to deal with Hebrew scripture and the way that Paul highlights Old Testament passages. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul references being put to shame. And so my question is, how does being put to shame fit into Paul's logic in Romans 9 through 11? Uh, I, I think that chapter, chapter 10, was probably the most fun chapter to write because uh, when I was doing a lot of uh, study, I kept noticing all this honor-shame language in in the background, in the context of the ultimate passage Paul cites. And then I, as I started looking closer, and especially when you look in the Septuagint, uh, all of a sudden you see the exact same phraseology and terms uh, that Paul is using, especially with respect to Isaiah 28. You won't see this in the Masoretic text. Um, so uh, I, I took the risk and actually put the Septuagint, uh, an excerpt of the Septuagint in the book because – Otherwise, if people open up their normal Bibles, it's based on the Masoretic text, they'll be, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a little bit of risk. But I think it doing uh, looking at that, what it does is it helps our, our assumptions because our logic is only as good as our assumptions. And the logic of our interpretation will only benefit us in as much as our assumptions reflect those of Paul. So we have to go to the Old Testament. And that helps us define our terms and our phrases in terms of what does he mean by the hope of glory? What does it mean? He will not be put to shame. And when he talks about uh, uh, being saved or um, uh, all who call upon his name will be saved, you know, well, well, who, saved from what are you referring to? And uh, the, uh, like uh, the passage, but I think it's Hosea, I know Joel, in Joel where he talks about uh, 
those calling on the Lord be saved. Um, or am, am, I, am I looking at that right? Let's see. Yeah. I'm trying to open up the text here. Uh, it said you go back in Joel 2 and twice in the context, it says very clearly that what will they say from? They'll be safe from shame, uh, safe from reproach and becoming a byword among the nations. Um, and, and so, uh, and so that kind of feeds into this idea of what do you mean by safe from shame? Because so oftentimes people see shame as merely this embarrassment. But when you look at the Old Testament text, it's not merely, oh, I'm embarrassed or I'm disappointed, which is, I don't think, a very good translation at all. But there's this objective sense of being put to shame that involves uh, judgment, but also involves this idea of uh, uh, being your hopes being dashed and, and let down and, and, and not just like, Oh, I, I'm disappointed, like bummer, but a sense of which the exact opposite has happened hmm. uh, to you. Um, one of the big clues that this honor shame logic is, uh, or honor shame is affecting his argument and is the fact that Paul in Romans nine thirty three and in 10, 11, twice quotes Isaiah 28, 16, now, Paul is rather economical with his, with his words, and he, he doesn't waste a lot of words, and yet he quotes the exact same passage twice in a matter of you know, 11 or 12 verses. Um, and in chapter 10, the not being put to shame is you know, parallel to and, and functionally, functionally synonymous with uh, both being justified and being saved. Uh, and so this is Old Testament language. And then when you go back and start looking, you notice there's a lot of language in, say, Isaiah, where he quotes and elsewhere uh, that you find in Romans, where they're talking about justification. And you see, for example, this emphasis on uh, upholding God's reputation as the one true creator God. And then you see the idea here is this, this idolatry that, uh, uh, that the people – were engaged in was bring shame upon God's name, saying he was insufficient. He was not worthy of, uh, of their trust. Um, and so ultimately idolatry is the ultimate shame cast upon God's name and his repu- disper- uh, disparaging of God's reputation. Hmm. Um, anyways, uh, that it's the most technical of all the chapters, but I think it's the most, uh, most rich and fun to look at. And I really hope that people, uh, dig into that chapter and then expand on areas that I just couldn't go into. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, and that is a very helpful section. Um, yeah. And it's such a crucial part of the book and, you know, for Paul and in, in your book. Um, so then you move to Romans 12 through 13 and you, and you talk about honoring the community of faith. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear kind of your take on how Paul combines honor and love within Romans 12 to 13. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of the things that can often get missed is that Christ followers are called to love one another with brotherly affection. Um, It's sometimes well, in today's world, we talk about we should love everyone. We kind of flatten out that love and forget the fact that there is a a priority given to fellow believers as family members. And so um, 
love between believers is a familial uh, love. And that, that creates obligations that don't exist for other types of relationships. Um, the way we love other people depends on our relationship to them. And so I would, you know, would love, you know, my family in a way that I would not love other people. And that's considered right and good. Um, so, uh, that's one of the things that I point out and that's, that's going to create some of the obligations that you see. And when Paul talks to the church in Romans 12, 13 verses, when he's talking to outsiders and, and sometimes honor is separated from love. Um, because I think there's a, it's kind of a, people have a bad idea of honor sometimes as, as it's just about pride or stroking ego, but to honor someone is to express their value. Um, it's, and the way believers, you know, show honor in Romans 12, uh, that's, that undermines this trust. It undermines shame. It undermines discord and division and the competition for status and praise. And when members of, and when uh, the family of God acts as members of a body, then there's this harmony there. There's a unity there so that no one lacks honor. And there's, and there's not a sense of, of feeling uh, 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 undervalued because that's a central part of loving is expressing value. Well, that's just honor-shame language. Mm. And so uh, honor in Eastern cultures, there's a far more a great emphasis on harmony and uh, bring harmony in the group. And that's exactly what you see in Romans uh, 12 to 13. Uh, and harmony is only possible when people um, stop making themselves the basis of, for honor. Mm-hmm. And, that, uh, and they start assessing, and they stop assessing each other's worth according to cultural standards. Um, and so Paul is, after all this discussion in 1 to, to 11, is now has the right paradigm in their minds to say, okay, uh, with this new identity, you can love people in a radically new way. Right. Yeah. Well, well since you mentioned that, how does, um, how, well, how do chapters one through 11 kind of relate to Romans 14 and, you know, at how the book ends with honoring Christ as Lord of all and, and the ethics within the community of faith? How do you see those, um, those sections relating? Well, I see Romans 14 as, uh, as Paul's application of the gospel laid out throughout all his early letter um, and consequently how honor and shame should shape the Christian practice. Um, you see a lot of the same uh, themes there where, whereas instead of talking about circumcision as what is the, the boundary line for who's in and who's out of God's community, God's family in Romans 14, you see this application with respect to what you eat and drink. And so eating and drinking becomes something of a gospel issue uh, because it's making a boundary line other than Christ. Uh, Paul, as I point in the book, uses a lot of the same language to, uh, to show that he's doing this. Uh, and so uh, I think one of the take-homes you get from Romans 14 and the application there is you see, well, what really is a gospel issue? Uh the Jew-Gentile division undermined the proclamation that Christ is king over all nations. And similarly, similarly, their split, their arguments over meat and what you could eat or drink would imply that uh, Christ is only Lord of only one group uh, versus not the other group. You know, you know how we, whatever, so 
however we subtly create these social tribes uh, functions in the same way that the circumcision issue did in the early part of, of Romans. So uh, sometimes people may not see the significance of Romans 14 for today because it's like, hey, I, you know, it, are we talking about a vegan or a vegetarian or whatever? No, it's, it's really about uh, creating boundary lines. Um, and is your unity based in Christ or is it in something else, whether it be economics or tradition or gender or, or hometown or whatever it may be? Mm. Yeah. And I think that's such a helpful way to, to connect the two. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the overview of the, the content of your book. Uh, it's a very great readable resource. Um, how would you desire people um, will read Romans in light of your work? Say that, you know, they finished this book. How would you like to kind of leave an impression with them? Uh, I think there's a few things I'd really like people to take away. Um, one is obviously, I, I was obviously, I like them to see that honor and shame are pervasive themes in all cultures, Western, Eastern, ancient, and modern, and therefore in all the books of the Bible. And that honor and shame is not something that, uh, it exists only where you see the words honor or shame, but it comes out in so many uh, subtle forms, um, so many cultural expressions and symbols and ways of talking. Uh, it, like in Eastern cultures and collectivistic cultures, there's a lot more indirect speech. And so uh, I think interpreters need to be more open to nuance and uh, uh, multiple purposes uh, when writing. Uh, I would be suspicious, hope people would be more suspicious of uh, interpretive dichotomies that says it can, it's all this way or all that way. Whereas chances are, uh, there's probably a harmonizing of, of, of multiple interpretations. That's true because um, there may be something, kind of an undercurrent um, uh, within the letter. Mm-hmm. But there's another part uh, that I want people to take away that we didn't talk about so much. And that is that our cultural backgrounds and our cultural lens can be a major contribution to our interpreting of uh, Romans and Paul's letters. People oftentimes want to be completely objective and, and take out cultural bias. And that's just absolutely impossible. Um, a traditional interpretation is also culturally biased. And, but I don't want to use the word bias in a negative sense. The idea is that uh, our cultural lens, our subcultural lens even, it provides us uh, – a framework that we see things that it creates the questions that we ask it, it, uh, it blinds us to certain things that are actually in the text. Um, so when, when people hear me say things like this, they get real nervous as if, well, you're going to read something into the text. Well, no, the broader range of cultural perspectives you have from your experience in your mind, the more questions you can raise and the more details of Paul's letters you can be attuned to. It doesn't mean you automatically accept you know, everything, but it does help you to have more objective perspective because you can balance one perspective versus another. That's right. Yeah, no. And that is a, that's a very helpful point to, to remind us of and to help us as we read um, the books of the Bible. Um, so as we close, you know, we, we appreciate you donating your time. Um, would you like to just tell our audience and share with us if you're working on any, any more projects? Yeah, I'm uh, in the early stages of a, a work actually on the atonement. And there are a, a big aspect of honor and shame uh, 
is is metaphors. I feel like a lot of honor shame language is hidden in the metaphors uh, that the Bible uses and that we use. And so I want to look at how to reconcile, so to speak, the mixed metaphors of the atonement in the Bible. And from that, try to tease out some of the honor shame implications uh, uh, that are in the atonement. People speak a lot about bearing our shame. Christ bore our shame on the cross. Well, uh, I want to see you know, what truth there is to that. Uh, so it's while it's it has a focus on honor and shame to some degree, it's really more well-rounded in terms of uh, how does the Bible as a whole look at the atonement when you look at it with an honor shame lens and with respect to balancing these various metaphors. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that sounds very interesting. Man. Well, uh, Jackson, I so appreciate you taking your time um, and joining us for this podcast. Um, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read. <laughs>